Today we're talking about a famous character from the Hebrew scriptures from 1 Kings, and she was named Queen Jezebel. Her husband was King Ahab. Now, many of you know that First and Second Kings are the historical accounts of the divided nation of Israel, the two monarchies that had a ton of disobedient to God kings, Ahab being probably the worst, and Jezebel, his wife, being probably even worse than him. So the story that I would like to read to you first is in 1 Kings 21, and it's the story of Naboth's vineyard. There was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, which is close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab says to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you want, I'll pay you. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So it was customary to keep land as a legacy of your family at this time. So he refused the king because of societal norms. He wanted to honor his family by keeping their traditional land. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He laid on his bed sulking. He refused to eat. So his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, Ahab's wife said, is that how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote, letter, she wrote letters in Ahab's name. She placed his seal on them and then he sent, she sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city. And in those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting, seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king then take him out and stone him to death. So she writes a letter in Ahab's name commanding this elaborate setup that will eventually get Naboth killed for treason. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters that she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him. They brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside to the city, outside the city to stone him to death. And then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of your vineyard. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, what did he do? He got up and took possession of the vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go down to meet Ahab. Elijah, of course, rebukes him and pronounces the consequence, which is um, in this very place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Elijah says, I'm going to bring God. Elijah says that God says, I'm going to bring disaster on you and wipe out your descendants. And that ends up being fulfilled uh, shortly after in history. So 
It comments, the writer of First Kings comments, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites that the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard Elijah's words, this is the very end of the passage. Don't worry, it's almost done. Ahab tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. He humbled himself. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. He lightens the punishment because Ahab partially repents. He humbles himself. I know that was a long story, but you got through it. Good job. Okay, now let's talk about the characteristics of Jezebel versus the characteristics of Jesus. This is just a really good juxtaposition as we practice learning discernment, spiritual discernment. So in 1 Kings 21, what we just read, Jezebel operates in the flesh, in striving, and in self-will. In the flesh, in striving, and in self-will. Because Ahab was sulking that he didn't get the vineyard he wanted that was close to his palace. She steps in with her own plan. So she's not yielded to anyone else. She's solving the problem in her own way. Now, on the other hand, we have the example of Jesus. In his earthly ministry, he relied on the Father. Remember how he submitted to the will of his Father in the garden when he said, not my will, but thine be done? And even operating at a level of peace that showed his trust in the Father, in the Father's ways and in the Father's provision, as demonstrated in Mark 4 when he was literally asleep in the boat when all the rest of the disciples were freaking out thinking they were about to die. Jesus operated from a place of rest. And in Hebrews 4, it tells us, make every effort to enter that godly type of rest. That's where your only striving should be to enter rest. You shouldn't be striving to control your life, to manipulate other people, to make certain things happen in certain ways according to your own plan. So there's this principle throughout the Bible where it started in the garden when we took we wanted that knowledge of good and evil, and we wanted we wanted to make it happen in our timing and in our way, and so we just reached out and took what God said to not. He had a different way that He was going to give us all the knowledge and all the goodness and all the understanding that we would ever need and more, and it was in unity with Him. But we went apart from Him and made our own plan and took it for ourselves. And this is what you see happening in Jezebel's approach to solving this vineyard problem. She's willing to throw someone under the bus, bus to the point of them getting stoned to death for a crime they didn't commit so that she could make it happen. Even when Ahab was just going to give up at that point, he didn't even care that much. So you see this kind of totally different spirit behind the way they operated. And I've done this. I'm kind of embarrassed to say even in ministry, because I worked in vocational ministry part-time for 10 years, I can think back and remember times where I wanted to solve problems, I wanted to work hard, and I wanted to make things happen, whether it was pressure I was putting on myself, whether it was a perceived pressure from someone with influence over me somewhere, that I just took it upon myself to try and make things happen and come up with plans and move things forward and even manipulate other people to get in line with how I thought things should go. And that is um, the opposite of Christ-like leadership. And I had to learn 
how to be patient and wait on God's timing and on his methodologies. Because a lot of times he'll reveal a strategy to you for whatever he's calling you to do. So it's our choice whether we want to just reach out and take, make it happen in our own strength, thinking we know best, or waiting on God, fasting, humbling ourselves before him and hearing from the Father how he wants to bring about these plans, wherever, whatever aspect of our life we're talking about, but especially if you work in ministry. Okay, so that was number one. The number one comparison and contrast that we have between Jezebel and Jesus is that Jezebel was in her own striving and strength, and Jesus was surrendered and submitted to the Father's will and ways. Number two, Jezebel has idols, and she wants everyone else to like recruit over to worshiping her idols too. She wants to influence others to bow to her priorities and and, and serve her idols. And juxtapose that with um, Jesus, he served the Father alone. He didn't have idols. And he stayed the course. So he he never bowed to any other power besides Yahweh. He knew that that was the only path. And even when the attempter, the accuser, sorry, the accuser tried to tempt him in the desert, he had enough clarity and humility to stay the course. And in our lives, you know, we don't deal as much with physically carved out of wood idols but we all have opportunities to revere other things and other little G gods or to stay the course and keep our loyalty to Yahweh alone. Number three. Okay, so just to review, we had number one, operating in the flesh and versus operating by yielding to the Father. Number two, worshiping a bunch of idols of our own choosing versus worshiping Yahweh alone, staying on the narrow path. Number three, Jezebel manipulates, intimidates, and controls. Jesus honors everyone's free will and patiently offers mercy and grace. Even if you aren't following Jesus, he still loves you. Even if you aren't doing what he wishes you would do with some area of your life, he's still protecting you and offering you mercy and offering you grace for a long, long, long patient time. So Jezebel was more into control, fear, manipulation, and intimidation to get what she wanted. Jesus, while he does have a plan for you and he does know what's best for your life since he created it, He's letting every individual have perfectly free will, incorruptible free will, that they can actually choose where they want to be headed for time and eternity. Do they want to partner with God? Do they want to yield and worship Jesus? Or do they not? And while it's sad to watch someone not, we have to honor the fact that God has set things up that way. They get to choose whether they want to do what he says. Now, in our lives, maybe we've come across somebody who is more like a Jezebel in that they want to control, manipulate, and influence, and intimidate 
because they have such a specific way that things should be done that they're willing to compromise the respect of another person. Um, they're willing to compromise treating that other person as an equal or even doing what the Bible says and considering ourselves, you know, lower than other people around us, putting them first. They're willing to scratch all that because they're so task oriented and so specific to make something happen the way they want it to happen, that they're willing to get their priorities wrong with how they're treating people to make that thing happen. That's manipulative. That's controlling. And if you find yourself a little bit scared of someone, maybe you're avoiding doing things that you would want to do, but you know that it would make them upset. You're avoiding the backlash then you might be dealing with someone who's a little bit manipulative and controlling. And uh, what stinks is when that person, yeah, control issues. Yes, Linda, exactly. Yeah, Jezebel was the prime example, like one of the most prime examples in the Hebrew scriptures of an individual who was so taken over by their own self-will and by their own control issues that they she got to the point where she was willing to kill for what she wanted time and time again. And uh, and then you contrast that with Jesus, who has the actual power to do anything to anyone. And he's so patient. Even when people are going against him, he lets us choose. He respects our free will and our choice. And I think that the mark of a godly leader is there's someone who they can describe um, what we want people to aspire to, but a godly leader never forces or coerces or manipulates because we got to let God do the work in people's hearts and we've got to let the Father do it his way. Okay, so that was number three. Number four, this is the last juxtaposition I'll make between Jezebel and Jesus today. Jezebel silences the voice of the prophets of God. And then, of course, Jesus always works in unity with truly prophetic believers. Jesus cultivates and encourages everyone's giftings and accurately recognizing what giftings, Holy Spirit giftings people have and put and implementing them appropriately in the body of Christ. So good leaders that are operating truly like Jesus, leading like Jesus, they will recognize God's prophet and listen when they should they won't silence the prophet. So I've been to a lot of different churches as a visitor and a singer and stuff. And I've noticed that some churches really cultivate the prophetic voice. And it's tricky because people are going to pretend that they're prophesying when they're not. And you have to have really, really deep discernment about who you give a microphone to in your church. That's real. Um, but, but then there's other churches that silence the voice of the prophet of God. And, of course, there's other famous stories about Jezebel in the Bible where she kills off as many of God's prophets as she can. And she raises up as many false prophets as she can that tell her what she wants to hear and that spread her false religion. So the, the voice of the prophet is a big deal. Now, prophets in the Old Testament, and I would argue prophets today, we don't always say pleasant things. Sometimes we call out corruption. Sometimes we think, say things in ways that are shocking or weird. And that's 
because God is giving people a choice whether they want to humble themselves and listen to what he's doing and, and, and discern his message or if they want to be put off by the packaging. A lot of times that's why he does that. So um, if someone is silencing the voice of the true prophet in the church, you can take that as one very serious indicator that they're a little bit operating in more of a Jezebelic type leadership style than a Christ-like one. Okay, so if you've been around enough churches for enough years, you may have encountered people like this. So people, um, broken people operate churches and attend churches. But when you have someone unrepentant and operating in this kind of controlling mode, that's different than just being an imperfect leader. At that point, they're having like a control stronghold or a a Jezebel spirit. Okay, so I know I hate to, I hesitate to use that term because it's a very overused term in Pentecostal world and because it started getting used to describe tempting women for some reason, and that's not what it means. A guy or a girl can be manipulative and controlling. A guy or a girl can be operating in this kind of um, intimidation tactics in their leadership and influence. Uh, uh, And um, it doesn't matter about whether they're using sexuality to try to manipulate someone or other means. All of it's manipulation. Okay, so if you've heard that Jezebel name described in those super specific kind of sexist patriarchal ways in the past, let that go because this definition is more broad. The biblical definition of, you know, manipulation and control and um, ungodly leadership, it's it, it's described throughout the whole Bible and it encompasses basically operating in the flesh and in our own self-will versus being yielded to the Father in humble surrender to His ways. Okay, so Jezebel operates in the flesh, has idols, manipulates, controls, and intimidates, and silences the prophets. Jesus, and therefore the Christ-like leaders that we should be looking for in the body of Christ and elevating in Christian culture, ideally, operates in God's rest and God's will, serves the Father alone, and stays the course even when the accuser tempted him, honors everyone's free will and shows them mercy and grace and patience, and is in unity with prophetic believers cultivating everyone's gifts, letting people use their gifts, okay? So those are some things to look for in a healthy church when you're trying to look for healthy leadership. Are they operating like Christ would with this this kind of open hand to what the Father wants to do and this respect of everyone's free will and this... um, encouragement of everybody's diverse Holy Spirit gifts. Now, this can get pretty serious. There are some, I don't know if they're real churches or just places that call themselves churches that do do a, a really poor job of leading like Christ and have people there who are very similar to Jezebel to their own demise and unfortunately to the demise of others oftentimes. So, I want to read to you, this is a printout from Dan Koch's website. Dan Koch is a therapist and a kind of progressive Christian thought leader that studies spiritual harm. He's doing his dissertation on it right now, and he created a clinical screener 
So this is a survey that you would potentially like take as his client in therapy or whatever. Um, but it's called the spiritual harm and abuse scale. So it's a one to five scale. So I just want to read through these. And if you feel ready, you could even ask yourself if you've experienced any of these indicators of abuse, spiritual abuse. Okay. Number one, being expected to consult my pastor or leader before making non-religious decisions. Number two, behavior being excessively monitored by my pastor or group members. Number three, my pastor or leader explicitly claiming to speak on God's behalf. Number four, being expected to follow my pastor or leader's personal rules around dating, marriage, and sex. Number five, experiencing extreme pressure to take on a role of pastor, missionary, or other spiritual leader. Number six, vivid descriptions of hell, Satan, demons, or the end of the world being taught to young children. Number seven, seeing scripture used to justify physical violence. Number eight, terror or horror being used to motivate religious decisions. Number nine, seeing scripture used to justify abusive parent-child behavior. Number 10, being shunned or ignored by my pastor or group. 11, being pressured to forgive an abuser while the abuse was ongoing. 12, seeing the leadership or group protecting or elevating abusive individuals. 13, being blamed for harm that I suffered rather than blaming those who harmed me. 14, my church community abandoning me in a difficult time. 15, being denied opportunities to serve because of my gender. 16, being treated as less than because of my gender. Okay, 17, feeling isolated. 18, a lack of self-worth. 19, sadness over the loss of my faith or religious community. 20, self-hatred or self-loathing. 21, having trouble navigating life outside my religious community. 22, a lack of spiritual direction or purpose. 23, anger upon reflecting negative on re negative religious experiences. Totally normal. 24, we're almost done. Personally avoiding religious activities or settings to reduce distressing feelings. 25, feeling betrayed by God. 26, feeling as if God harmed me directly. 27, distrust of God. Now at the end of the scale, he has some check boxes in addition to those 27 um, selections that you would pick one through five on. Okay. And these are the check boxes. There's only a handful here. I was treated as less than because of my race or sexual orientation. I was pressured to stay in an abusive marriage by religious leaders. This happens way too much. I was deterred from seeking mental health care. I had unwanted sexual experiences in a religious context. I was taught that I would be risking hell if I left my particular church. I was taught to distrust my emotions or intuitions. Mental or physical problems were interpreted as spiritual or moral weakness. Love or acceptance was only offered if I performed well enough spiritually and morally. I was made to feel like I was the crazy one for having doubts or questions. I developed physical ailments from the stress of conforming to the leaders or group's expectations. Lastly, I was cut off by religious family members. Those are all signs of spiritual abuse. Those are all the wrong spirit, the wrong attitude, the controlling, Jezebelic, fleshly, 
leadership that God condemns. And if you've experienced any of this, I encourage you to process it with a well-trained therapist. And I also encourage you to get into a spiritual community that seems a little less controlling and a lot healthier. Um, you can't change things when there's unrepentant people that have more power and that are above you and that outnumber you. It only stay in a church like that if God is explicitly leading you to and telling you to. And in that case, he's going to bring you a support system outside of it to help you navigate that. But in most cases, I would just tell you to move on, even if it's a smaller group, but it has safer people. Even if it's a less less polished public speaker, but they have less control issues, choose that every time. So I want to end with an encouraging scripture. This is a good reminder of how to operate like Jesus and how to crucify our Jezebelic tendencies as humans. We can always choose humility. And so this is Philippians 2, 5 through 11 from the message paraphrase. And it says that our attitude should be humble the way that Christ humbled himself. So this is what it says. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and he took on the status of a slave became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever. (laughs) so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow down and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. So I hope that reading that Hebrew scripture account of the Old Testament queen Jezebel reminds us of what we don't want to be. We're all a few steps away from stepping into our flesh, being coming, controlling somehow, wanting our own way above God's way. But we're all just one step away from bowing before the true boss, Jesus, and worshiping and yielding to his loving ways and leading from that place of humility. That's all of our choice. And I hope that the North American evangelical slash Protestant church can have a huge revival in this area, a huge repenting, and and that many, many of our leaders can become more humble and break away from partnering with this Jezebel philosophy that we have to control and we have to filter everything and we have to do things in ways that make sense to our task-oriented selves. Laying all that down and choosing obedience because God's ways are higher, 
choosing patience because what God has coming is better than what we could contrive on our own and choosing humility because just because you happen to be in a leadership position or on a stage doesn't make you better in any way than the people who are gathering with you to worship God. A lot of times their gifts are more developed. Their maturity in Christ is further along. And let's do it, whatever we can to recognize that and honor that wherever we see it. That's our job as leaders. Okay, I hope this was encouraging to you today. God bless you guys. Comment below if you have any thoughts. Bye.